Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our passage is from Philippians chapter 2, it's verses 12 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This morning is a communion devotional. We're, we're headed to the Lord's table. And because of that, I, I want to focus in on three words from that passage. Next week, I will unpack it in greater detail. But the three words are found in verse 14. Grumbling or questioning. Grumbling or questioning. In today's forum, we unpack the Greek word lupe. Paul says, I think it's seven times in 2 Corinthians 7, he talks about lupe. Lupe means grief, sorrow, loss, sadness. And when we experience lupe in this world, oftentimes we turn to grumbling and questioning. The Apostle Paul wants us to work out what God is working in to our lives, right? Work out, verse 12, your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. We are by nature grumblers and questioners. And here's the good news. God takes responsibility for our recovery the moment we take personal responsibility for our condition, for our grumbling, and for our questioning heart. We are by nature, we were born grumblers and disputers or questioners. If you don't believe me, just listen to the conversation in the car ride home from church today. (laughs) The devil is never busier than in the car going to church and home from church. At least that's been my experience. That's why I stopped driving with the family. I would leave early. It was just better for my soul. I was in the car with my Aunt Winnie. Aunt Winnie, she did not have kids of her own. She was our favorite aunt, lived in western Pennsylvania, my mom's sister. We we would go visit Aunt Winnie and Uncle Clarence. And I remember one time, Aunt Winnie took the three older Kirks 
for a trip to town. They lived up in the, on the mountain, and it took a while to get down there. By the time we got to town, Aunt Winnie, the most godly, most gentle woman you'd ever meet, she pulled the car over, slammed it in the park, turned around, and said, Stop bickering. Stop bickering. Aunt Winnie, we were, we were shocked by this gentle soul. You see, she, because she didn't have kids, she didn't have calluses on her soul. <laughs> she didn't have, she hadn't developed hardness of hearing so that you can ignore the bickering and the complaining and the whining. And the... So for a couple of minutes, we were just in shocked silence. Now, to be clear, Aunt Winnie for 30 years taught 32nd graders. But it took three Kirks to put her over the edge. So after a couple minutes of silence, I said, Carrie, Kimberly, Aunt Winnie is right. You are bickerers. <laughs> and the bickering started back up again. Beloved, bickering and questioning God is a capital offense. It is a cosmic crime. And the good news is, the moment we admit our condition, God becomes active in curing it. This bickering and questioning and disputing, it's all through the Bible. You know when it started? Genesis 3, right? But if you work back from, from the Corinthians, you, you, you find the religious leaders. You know, in the beginning of Luke 15, we have three parables of something that's lost. A sheep, a coin, a son. We have those three parables for one reason. Because the religious leaders were grumbling at Jesus. They said, quote, this man receives sinners. They were grumbling. It was their spiritual heritage. If you go back into the wilderness, the Israelites wandering around, they, were prof they made it an art, this grumbling and complaining. In fact, it's one of the main reasons they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Are you in the wilderness of grumbling, questioning, and complaining? In Exodus 16, seven times grumbling is mentioned in just one chapter. And, and the, 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 the final word is from God himself. He said, I have heard your grumbling. And he had come to lower the boom. Are you familiar with the phrase, lower the boom? Is that, is that a... I, uh, my dad would tuck me into bed. That was one of his favorite sayings. Don't, don't make me lower the boom. Uh, but when, we, when he tucked me in bed, he said, Tim, you're wonderful, but you need a little vixen. That started when I was like eight. And I, for years, I would go to sleep thinking, I wonder what vixen is. Right? So one night he said, Tim, you're great. He prayed with me. He said, love you. You're great. But you need a little vixen. I said, Dad, what is vixen? And he said, fix 
fixin', fixin'. You need a little fixin'. It changed my life. <laughs> I stopped looking for that vial of vixen. Dad would say, don't make me lower the boom on you. God says to the people, I have heard your grumbling. And listen, it is a capital offense because as we're going to see in a minute, many died because of it. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, and this is fanciful, but his, I think his point is a good one. He said, if in this life you, you're a grumbler, a complainer, a questioner, grumble, if you're characterized by grumbling, in the next life, you're not going to be a person who grumbles. You're just going to be a grumble. Hell, he said, is just full of grumbling. Just low, murmured, eternal, cosmic grumbling at God. Where does this grumbling come from? Well, it, we went to the religious leaders and we go to the Israelites in the wilderness. It really is back in the garden, right? In the garden, the serpent came in to Adam and Eve and he said, did God really say? And with that, he questioned God. In the garden, humanity, spiritually speaking, was snake bit. As the serpent's venom coursed through the heart and soul of Adam and Eve, God no longer seemed trustworthy or generous. Grumbling replaced gratitude, and disputing replaced trust. So that what Adam and Eve started to think, wait a minute, God is God's really not fair. I deserve better. I bet the forbidden fruit is the best fruit. Paradise was not good enough for Adam and Eve. Martin Luther, our, our meditation at the beginning of the service, said this, the sin underneath all our sins is the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and that we must take matters into our own hands so that grumbling and disputing became fatal. A death sentence. But the good news in Christ is this. God takes personal responsibility for your recovery and mine the moment we take personal responsibility for our condition. If you have a Bible, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, this is where Paul takes that Old Testament passage where the people are grumbling and really shows its impact. 1 Corinthians 10, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Old Testament Bible lesson. It's actually one of the few Old Testament Bible lessons we have in the New Testament where someone really unpacks a passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is one of those examples where in the New Testament we're showing that was the, the Christ figure. That, that, the whole story of the Bible is Christ. And so in this case, he's the rock. A little bit later, he's going to mention he's the bread. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 10, 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He says, most, for most of them, they didn't make it into the promised land. Most of them? That's an understatement. 
of all the adults who left Egypt, the million or million, two million adults who left Egypt, how many entered the promised land? Two. That's how serious God is in addressing our grumbling, disputing, questioning hearts. Now these things took place, verse 6, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The underlying thing is evil. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Please note that. He's saying in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were wandering around, when they doubted, when they tested God, they were testing Christ. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And then he makes this application. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. When we grumble, when we question, when we complain, God, we are falling. God takes it very, very seriously. What is the reference to the serpents? The final passage I'd like to take you to is Numbers 21, because I believe this is what Paul is actually building on. In, in Numbers 21, the children of Israel are in the wilderness, and they're grumbling. So here's what we read. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Or, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and spoke against Moses. Quote, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Many of our grumbling and complaints start with the word why. Because we think we know better. For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Note, they said what threatens our lives is self-induced. Our condition is fatal. Our sin is killing us. We need a mediator. Pray for us. And so Moses, who's really Christ's representative at that point, prays for a remedy. What is this deal with fiery serpents, fiery snakes? Honestly, if we could step back, if you're, if you're a Christian, could you please step back and, and not see why the world would say, this is an Aesop's fable, this is made up, this is crazy. That God's own people, when they disobey, when they grumble a little bit, he sends fiery snakes into the camp to kill many of them? What is going on? I love to raise that kind of question and then 
instead of back up, press through. This is an amazing analysis of how selfishness and sinfulness devours every person. So if you don't think this is actually God's word for us, pay attention closely. The first serpent bite occurred in the Garden of Eden. When the venom of the first serpent passed into Adam and Eve's hearts, their hearts became a wilderness. And because they were our representatives, our hearts became a wilderness, a place of lack, a place of temptation, a place of weakness. Mistrust and an unwillingness to believe that God is good passed from the serpent into their hearts and souls. So, into the camp in Numbers 21, God sends venomous, fiery snakes. They're called fiery because the bite inflamed you. There was local burning and then a fiery fever and ultimately death. So here's the pattern. The people complain and God sends lethal snakes. The, the people grumble and God strikes them down. The people question God and he inflicts capital punishment. Now the natural modern response is, this is an overreaction. God is, is, is flying off the handle. Hey, this is disproportionate. We complained about the food in the cafeteria and the lunch lady wants to kill us. On the surface, that's exactly what it is. But below the surface, we realize that the venom of the serpent, he is a, he is a liar, he is a thief, and he is a murderer. And he is committed to, to biting and devouring, to spreading his venom into the souls of all people, and to attack God's people. So that we revert back to that old pattern of grumbling and questioning and doubting God. After all his goodness, after all his faithfulness, the people, here's the amazing thing, the people did not say, hey, God's overreacting. They said, Moses, our sin is killing us. Intercede for us. We can't do it on our own. So, when the spiritual venom, one author put it this way, when the spiritual venom of the serpent passed in their hearts and soul, when an unwillingness to believe God passed in their hearts and soul, an all-consuming, unquenchable, burning thirst was created. Do you know that thirst? Unquenchable. Never satisfied. Not enough. What does Moses tell them to do? That's the intriguing thing. Moses says, verse 8 of Numbers 21, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So make an image of the thing that's killing you. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus talked about that event in John 3. The most famous verse in the Bible comes right after Jesus talking about the bronze serpent being lifted up, the cure being lifted up. John 3.14, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. 
So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ is the cure. Christ is raised up. And those who look to him by faith are cured. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Looking to Christ by faith at the cross extracts the venom in our souls, sets us free from that discontentment, grumbling heart. On the cross, Christ extracts the venom and took it in himself. He was saturated with that poison so that we who are snake bit, sin bit, might look to Christ and live by faith. As we prepare to go to the Lord's table, it's worth asking the question, what keeps people from Jesus? What keeps people from Jesus? And and in a word, it's lupe. It's grief. The leading cause of people holding Christ at arm's length is in light of the lupe of the world, grief, sorrow, loss, sadness. They refuse to trust Christ and his promises. But that's because the devil's a liar and a thief and a murderer. The devil will use lies, loss, and death to harden your heart toward God. And when he does, you have two options. When you experience that grief, godly grief, turning to God by faith, or worldly grief, turning to the world's solution, which ultimately leads to death. To turn to God with godly grief is to embrace Christ by faith, is to repent for your sins, and to ask him to remove all the regrets that surround the grief. You know, someone said, old age is when your regrets outnumber your dreams. And I can just say, having just turned 60, I'm starting to understand why older people have regrets. I mean, over time, they they pile up, don't they? Missed opportunities, relationships we didn't keep in good repair, choices we made. Regrets will crush you. See, worldly sorrow leads, leaves regret and leads to death, Paul says. But godly sorrow, turning to God, being renewed by him, we let, we let the regrets go as we repent of our self-centered sin. Worldly grief is dealing with the devil, plain and simple. Godly grief is dealing with Jesus. And the good news is God will take responsibility for your condition the moment you take responsibility for your condition. Turn to Jesus with godly grief as we join him at the table. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, and serve us the feast of your supper. Extract from us the venom, the poison in our souls. We ask you would do it by your power, through your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.